All right, let's start with our summary statement. Psalm 123, praise for God to be gracious to Israel. One more time, Psalm 123, praise for God to be gracious to Israel. A simple outline will be two parts, verses 1 to 2, looking and waiting. Verses 3 to 4, prayer for mercy. Go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 2, looking and waiting. Verses 3 to 4, prayer for mercy. All right, we'll go to our observations. Psalm 123 is an anonymous psalm. So the superscription you see there, a song of degrees. um, And there's no uh, author attribution that is given, nothing in the text that would identify an author. Um, there's also no musical direction in the text of the psalm, so beyond the, the mention in the heading of the song, um, nothing further. Uh, there's no specific occasion that is given. Um, the text is certainly consistent with exile conditions, um, and it seemed like that quite a few uh, scholars would agree that, that it's, it, it certainly answers to uh, an exile setting. Um, so in one of the older, um, or I guess more recent psalms then. So Psalm 123, to categorize it, it is a psalm of ascent. And remember that that's a group of psalms beginning at Psalm 120, going through Psalm 134. So this is the fourth psalm now of that 15-psalm group. Um, as far as minor elements are concerned, I would consider this psalm a, a lament. Um, it's not quite all of the standard conventions of a lament, but it, it is very close. Um, it's sort of a lament light, uh, if you will. So um, you have verse 1, a direct address prayer to God. In verse 2, an expression of trust. In verse 3, a petition. And verse 4, a crisis complaint. So again, it does fit within a lament, and in that case, uh, we'd also consider it a um, communal um, lament rather than an individual lament. So Psalm 123 does connect with the other psalms of ascent. And so in this particular psalm, you have the theme of exile, Um, the universal reign of God, when you get references to God being in the heavens or seated in the heavens or or something along that line in particular. Um, And so it's also going to connect with other exile-themed laments. Uh, One area in particular will be Psalm 44, verses 13 to 16. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 123... um, as you begin looking at it, it's obvious that it's a very short psalm, um, so it's very compact. Um, but it's also quite remarkable, actually, 
uh, how much poetic texture that this psalm has, given that it's, that it's so short. Um, so one of the features would be that it is a very unified psalm, and, and what I mean by that is that it has one main thought, that of waiting for mercy. That is a, the main primary thought within, within this short psalm. Now, the psalm uses repetition, and so you've got a couple different kinds of repetition. One is a repetition of phrases, and the other is a repetition of terms. So if you think about the repetition of phrases, you can see the repetition there as the eyes of in verse number two um, that is repeated. Uh, Have mercy upon us in verses two and three, and exceedingly filled in verses three and four. And then there are some terms that are repeated like eyes and mercy and contempt. Another feature of this psalm is that it has a pronoun shift, and so it opens up with singular, um, I lift up my eyes, and so on, but then it switches, and the rest of the psalm is in a plural, talking about us and, and we, um, and so on, and, and that would be the reason we would call it a communal lament rather than an individual. Um, this psalm also has um, a somewhat unique feature that um, according to some Hebrew scholars, there is actually a little bit of rhyming in this psalm. There are um, some words and repetition of words in the Hebrew that have um, the same or very similar endings. And so you actually do have rhyming of words, which isn't very common actually in, in the psalms or in Hebrew poetry in general. Um, but, but you do have that here. Of course, we don't see that effect in, in English Another um, feature of the psalm would be the, the spatial effect, and by that I'm uh, referring to things like distance and, and such. So the psalm speaks of God in the heavens, and from God in the heavens to the psalmist, a slave on the earth. And so there's a contrast there, the contrast of height to being low, um, and really that contrast comes about in two ways. So you've got heaven to earth as being an obvious height to low. But then you also have um, high to low in terms, you might say, of standing because you have God enthroned and then to, down to a slave. So a pretty large distance. Now, in, in also in terms of the spatial effect in this psalm, um, what, one way you could say is that this is a psalm that goes nowhere. Um, there's just no movement in the psalm. So you don't move to a resolution. You don't move to a response. You don't move to an answer from God or even an expression of confidence about God's answer. You really just have an expression of a present condition that seems very stagnant. Um, it is, it's not moving anywhere. So the effect of this, when you read the psalm, is that of being stuck. Um, and so because of that, there's an emphasis on watching and waiting for help to come from above. There's no other place for it to come from. So when you think about it in the flow of the Psalms of Ascent, um, we oftentimes call the, them, you know, the pilgrim psalms. And so this is a particular psalm where there is no pilgrimage. There's, there's exile. That comes through in the, in the psalm and the imagery and things that's used. So there's exile. 
but there's there's also no pilgrimage. There's no no movement. So um, the psalmist is stuck essentially in this crisis, and that is um, what he prays about. All right, so let's go ahead and work our way through this psalm. We have four verses. Go ahead and read these. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. So verse 1 gives us this opening direct address prayer. Um, Unto thee I lift up my eyes. Now the lifting up of eyes obviously is an indication of looking up for help, and that is echoing from Psalm 121 and verse number 1 that began with lifting up eyes to the the hills um, there around Zion, around Jerusalem. Now the word for dwellest, thou that dwellest in the heavens, God that dwells in the heavens. Now the word there, uh, it means to sit, and it actually has the idea of God being enthroned in the heavens. It's the very same word that is used back all the way in Psalm 2 and verse number 4, when you have in that psalm, you have the raging of the nations, raging against God, and raging against his, his anointed. And the psalm tells us that God sits in the heavens and laughs. And then he's going to install his king on Zion. So again, there's, there's the idea of, of abiding, of sitting enthroned. And so that is, that is what's captured here. Um, and it gives us this sense, I lift up mine eyes to God that dwells in the heavens. So it gives us this sense of distance and this sense of, of waiting. Um, I know that you know, communication is, um, is quite a bit different today uh, with the phones that we have and texting and, and all the various ways we have of, of communicating um, and, you know, there were times I can remember growing up when um, you just went somewhere to meet someone and you just waited. <laughs> you just sat there and waited um, for them to come. Now, if you were smart, you might have brought a book with you. Um, no batteries required, didn't have to have any wires hooked up to anything, and you could just sit there and read it. But you just would wait. And so a few of those times, you know how it is after a while, you think, well, they should have been here already. And so you know, you're kind of getting out, you're checking down the road, you're looking, waiting for that car to show up or whatever that the case may be. Well, that, that's kind of the sense that we get from this psalm. The psalmist is lifting up his eyes um, to God that dwells in the heavens and is pouring out his complaint um, to him. But he's, he's obviously watching and waiting because it's, it's only from above that his answer is going to come. Now, in verse number 2, we get these reference, this reference to the, uh, to the slave, and that is ebet. Um, it is the, the equivalent of doulos in the Greek. It does refer to um, a bond slave, uh, a bond servant. And actually we get a use here of, essentially this is a metaphor of household slaves, is what we get in this verse. And we actually get the masculine and the feminine here. So that, that's a way of oftentimes of indicating everyone. It's sort of poetic expression 
Um, so we have male slaves and, and, and female slaves that are referred to. And so the, um, the way that a slave looks to the master, and that's really what the essence of this metaphor is about. And um, there are varied opinions about that. But when we read this psalm in context, then we understand what's being spoken of. Now, it's easy for us to imagine uh, the slave-master relationship as being one that was not good. And so, you know, the, the slave might um, look at the master in a certain way and, and what have you. But none of, none of that is what is intended here. The point is, is that this is a reference to dependence, the way that a slave looks to the master. So in other words, a slave can't do anything for himself, essentially. He, a slave has to serve his master, and he has to look to his master to provide for his needs. Um, that, that's the point of the metaphor. So this captures the condition of the exile and he's in a judgment that he is acknowledging. And he is like a household slave that is totally dependent on his master to do him good and to provide for him the things that he needs. And that's absolutely what the um, psalm is about, is about that dependence and looking to, um, looking to God for that to be provided. Now, in verse number three, in the very end of verse number two, we get this refrain of, of praying for mercy. Have mercy upon us. Uh, ver- verse two, you also have that expression there at the end, until that he have mercy upon us, which is another feature of laments, the idea of how long or, or when. And so he says, we will, we will look like slaves to the hands of the master, independence, waiting for those things that we need, waiting for good to come to us until... He have mercy upon us. Now, this word for mercy, it is not chesed, which um, we've been um, paying special attention to as we've been going through the Psalms. This is a different word, sometimes translated mercy, sometimes it's translated grace. Um, sometimes I think it may even be translated kindness or favor or something. There's a few different words that are used to translate it. Um, but it, it has the idea of being gracious. And the word as I understand it, means to bend down or to, to stoop down to show kindness. So it's, it's a word that's, that's descriptive of someone that is superior, someone that is in higher position, condescending to show mercy and kindness to someone in low position. That's what um, the, word, uh, the word indicates. And this, this type of mercy or graciousness, if you don't want to confuse it um, with chesed, with God's covenant mercy, this type of graciousness, it is an attribute of God. Uh, mentioned, we see this as the, one of the words used in Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 6. And we can find it used in the Psalms in similar ways, Psalm 86 verses 15 um, to 16, that God is full of grace and mercy and compassion and things such as that. Now, verse 4, where we get the the end of verse 3 and, and through verse 4 is where we get the crisis complaint. And we get this repetition of being exceedingly filled with contempt. And that word is, is actually, um, it, it is more of a word picture than what it comes across in the English translation. 
Um, the word means to be filled to the full, as with food, or as with drink. In other words, to, to be filled up. You know, to think of it, in other words, um, you know, we, we've probably had that experience of, of maybe uh, sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner or, or, or something, you know, with, with family and, and, and we've eaten and we've eaten to the point that we just can't eat anymore. You know, oh, don't talk to me about food. Not another bite. I'm, I'm full. Is that kind of being, it's that kind of being filled. Now, of course, this is a very negative expression here. And so I think what would probably be close to it um, is uh, what we, we would say something like, I'm fed up. With this, now you know if mom or dad says I'm fed up with something, that's bad news. Now most of you are much more patient and gracious. You've probably never uttered that phrase in your life, but being fed up means means I'm full. I can't take any more. This is it. So that's that's what this that's what this expression is saying. Exceedingly filled with contempt. I have had my feel of scorn and derision and contempt in this condition of exile. So that is the crisis complaint. Now the suffering of contempt and the suffering of scorn is coming from the proud and the arrogant. And that is described in in, um, two different ways. The contempt of the proud and the arrogant are described as those that are at ease. And what that word indicates is sort of an arrogant security. So um, this would describe those who are oppressing and, and afflicting um, others, and, and they themselves, they, they dwell securely. Their, their daily bread is not in question. The, you know, the roof over their head doesn't leak, and, and they've got a place to sleep and clothes to wear, and you know, they've, got all, they've got all their needs met and then some, and they are at ease. And so they are, they're, they're arrogant in their sense of security. And so these and the proud have been um, scorning and, and, and deriding um, those in exile. And this actually is a condition of exile. And so if you, uh, like it's Psalm 44, verses 13 to 16, that's one of the complaints of that lament. Um, Psalm 79 in verse number 4. And there's other places, and in fact, you can look um, in the, the prophets, you can look in the books of Moses that speak of how that is going to come about. Um, they're going to be made a, a laughing stock or a gazing stock or, or what have you, a byword. Those that are at ease who are arrogantly secure and at luxury. Now, one thing that's interesting about that is because this psalm isn't entirely clear in terms of who are these that are at ease that are deriding the psalmist and those of the faithful community who are suffering this affliction. Well, if you turn to a passage like Amos chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, the warning there is those of Israel who are at ease. And so sometimes it was even the people of Israel who were arrogantly um, self-satisfied who were persecuting those who were the faithful. So it's not entirely clear, is this coming from the nations? Is this coming from um, those of, of Israel who are unbelieving? Um, and sometimes, you know, poetically, when you get that sort of ambiguity, um, the, the idea is actually to get both across, um, that really it's, it's, it's both. Um, and I think that probably is the case here. 
All right, let's go to our interpretation. Psalm 123 teaches the sovereign reign of God, and that's obviously how the psalm starts. He is enthroned in the heavens. And that means that he's above all and that he's over all. And some of the practical implications of that fact is that God can't be affected. Um, you and I, as well as, as Israel on the earth, can be affected by those who hate us, by those who hate God, by those who deride us and want to persecute us or afflict us in any number of ways. We can definitely be affected, but God cannot be affected. He cannot be deposed from his seat, his throne in the heavens. So this reference to God sitting in the heavens is, is indicating also that he controls all. He governs all that is under him. And though it can be difficult to reconcile in our minds, there's not anything that takes place in God's universe that he is not sovereign over. And it is fulfilling ultimately his will in some way. Now the imagery of the, the slave and the master that is used here is, is an imagery of a, of a gracious master, a gracious master showing mercy and compassion. Um, and that is obviously being, being compared um, to God in that sense or, or standing as a figure for him. So in other words, having the imagery of God sitting in the heavens and then the master of, of the household slave shows us that God is not just powerful and high. God is high. God is holy. God is almighty. God is all-knowing. God, God, yes, all those things, but he's not just or only that. He's also merciful, and he's also good, and he looks down to those who trust in him and has mercy on them. Now, this all conveys in this psalm that there is no help other than God. There's, there's nowhere else to look. And it, it's, we get the sense, again, in this psalm of being stuck. There's, just no, there's nowhere else to turn. There are no other options. You know, you kind of think about that uh, woman in the, in the gospel accounts, how that she, she'd spent all that she had. She'd seen every doctor that, that would see her. She Probably she had tried every remedy that, that any, anyone suggested to her. And she had come to an, an end of herself. And, you know, she went to Jesus. And that was the only place where she could get help. So there, there's no other help than from God. And there's, no, there's nowhere else to go. So the point is that Israel cannot just help themselves out of affliction and tribulation. And we've got a pretty good chunk of their history in the Bible that shows them trying to do just that. That they would, they would come under oppression or affliction from some of these neighboring nations. And they, they knew that God had brought this judgment on them because their um, neglect of his word, their, their abuse of, of his word, and all those sort of things. And they would try to straighten up. Or they would try to make up for it. Let's make extra sacrifices. Let's, let's, let, let's, let's take this to another level. Let's do more. Well, they can't deliver themselves out of affliction and tribulation. They cannot deliver themselves from their enemy oppressors. 
And even if it seemed like even if they would win a battle, there'd just be another enemy to take the place. So they cannot bring the kingdom stone from the mountain to crush the earthly kingdoms around them like Daniel's vision. They can't do that. Even Daniel said, that stone is cut out of the mountain without hands and comes down and crushes the the image and grows to be greater than all the mountains of the earth. So the messianic hope of Psalm 123 is seen through the answer to the problems of this particular psalm. And again, this psalm doesn't go anywhere in terms of it doesn't um, explicitly state the resolve or the resolution for this problem, but we know the resolution for the problem. And the psalmist knows the resolution for the problem. And that's why he's saying that all he can do is look up and wait and wait for God to have mercy. That's all that he can do. So the psalmist trusts no one other than Yahweh enthroned in heaven to deliver him and deliver us in terms of the the community of of Israel. So so back to Psalm 2 again. Psalm 2 shows us how that the God who sits in the heavens delivers his people. He does it by installing his anointed son as king in Zion. And then we come a little more recently and think how that Psalm 110 shows him, David's Lord, sitting at God's right hand in heaven to come to the earth and to destroy the enemy nations. So undoubtedly, this is what is being looked for. This is what is is being waited on in this psalm. And that's the deliverance that's only going to come through the Messiah coming to the earth. All right, application. Um, One application. Understanding Psalm 123 helps us understand that the answer for our problems and the problems in the world is that God sits in the heavens with his resurrected son at his right hand and will send him to the earth in his appointed time. So it's hard if we read this psalm and we understand what this psalm means and, and how it fits in here um, with the psalms of ascent and, and so on, and then we think about applying that to us, it's hard to not hear this message actually echoed in places in the New Testament. There are a number of places in the New Testament where we as New Covenant believers are told to look and to watch for his coming. So just, just a sample. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul wrote, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Writing mainly to Gentiles in Corinth. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 20, he which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly. 
Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. So our orientation is, is not different. Um, we're, not, we're not in uh, an exile crisis um, like those of Israel. But nevertheless, our orientation is the same. We are looking for, we are watching, we are waiting for the Lord to come. And it is his coming that is going to set all these things to right and deliver us from all evil.